Welcome back to the Data Stack Show. Today we have a really interesting guest lined up for you. We usually talk with people who are on the development side of the Data Stack, uh, actually doing the engineering work. But today we're going to talk with Nick DeCepoli, who is at Ruby. Uh, they build financial products. We will ask Nick all about what they're building. Uh, but they're an early stage startup and really had a strong need for data in multiple parts of the organization. Uh, but as we'll hear, a lot of the engineering needed to be focused on building the core product. And that presented kind of a problem in terms of building out the stack. And Nick really picked that up and did some amazing work um, as a non-developer to build out those pipelines. Costas, as an engineer, I'm interested in what you want to hear from Nick on um, you know, as someone who's built out a data pipeline and some infrastructure around that, who, you know, he's not a data engineer. So what are you interested from your perspective as a developer? Yeah, Eric, just as you said, I mean, uh, I think it's very uh, interesting to hear, like, to uh, see, like, the other side of data and how they're used in the, in the company uh, today. I mean, so far in all the episodes that we had, we discussed mainly with, uh, with the engineering side of things. So it will be super uh, interesting to see how the rest of the company, like other functions like marketing in this case, they can uh, utilize this data and actually try to, um, to extract value out of it. So that's one thing that I think is going to be very interesting and it's going to become even more interesting as we are going to have like a second part of this um, podcast where we're also going to interview um, the technical side of the company. Uh, another thing that I think it's very important is, I mean, traditionally we're talking uh, with data engineers and data engineering as a function in general, like in bigger companies, right? It's like um, usually it's one thing to go and talk to the squares out there uh, of the world uh, where they have like a big army of data engineers supporting like the rest of the company and their data needs. Uh, but it's super interesting uh, to see how this can happen in a startup uh, because as time passes, I think um, utilizing early on your data is becoming more and more uh, important uh, for the success and uh, the survival of a company. So I think that these are like the two main, um, uh, let's say, uh, tracks of questions that I would like to have and learn more and uh, what makes me really excited about uh, the call, uh, the chat that we're going to have today. Great, well, let's dive in and talk with Nick. Nick, welcome to the Data Stack Show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So this is part one of a two-part series, so I just have to say so that we don't get in trouble, you know, kind of be careful what you say, because when we talk with the CTO, you know, you're going to be on the record, uh, and he'll be able to call you on anything that doesn't line up with, <laughs> with reality. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take that into consideration, you know me, I'm, I'm usually lying about our data tech stack in a public <laughs> way. Um, well, tell us first, what is, uh, what is Ruby, what are you building? Uh, wh where are you at as a company just stage-wise? We know you're early stage, but just a little more detail there. And then would love just a quick summary of, you know, what did you start doing there? And then how did you end up building data infrastructure? Yeah, I'll just kind of start from the beginning because uh, how I got to where I am and the origins of the company are intertwined. Um, so um, I actually started working on this project uh, with our CEO, Troy Woolley, before it was even an idea. Um, I was looking for an internship in college actually, and found this idea and product consulting firm called flow thinkery here in Nashville, Tennessee. And, um, they were approached by, uh, first horizon bank 
to help them figure out what the future of digital innovation looked like for them. So um, at the time, there was a lot of money going into financial technology apps and banks were trying to figure out how to compete. Um, so we came up with, I think, 50 different ideas and it slowly whittled them down until they became uh, Ruby. Um, so starting out, I was just a research analyst. Um, I was looking at industry trends and conducting like preliminary user research about you know what problem is out there that we feel like we could do a good job of solving. And we landed on this idea of helping people through some of their most challenging financial moments. Um, a lot of times that tends to be around end of life or um, when you, you're older and your parents uh, are getting, getting older as well, um, you know, they might need some help dealing with financial matters, this, this sort of this whole passing of the torch. Um, and we wanted to step in and help with that with a digital solution um, that could just give people guidance um, and help them get their heads around this, this situation. So from there, uh, we found that there's a real need uh, in the medical space. Um, most of the times when people are dealing with these issues, um, you know, they're, they're, they're dealing with some sort of medical event that happened. So between observing that and then the, the COVID-19 pandemic hitting, we just really felt that we could best serve our, our, our audience by um, building a medical product that helps them reduce their medical bills by teaching them about negotiation, um, and, and looking up the right codes and, and, and checking all of that kind of stuff. So that's where we are right now. Um, we are early stage. We're, we're working on our first mobile app for that, but we have released a series of web apps in the past. Um, and my role has been identifying tech integrations on the marketing and operations side uh, that will work for the entire business and making sure that those integrate with our stack and then writing event code uh, to track users, uh, and then analyzing that on the back end um, and reporting that to, to stakeholders. Got it. So we, I want to get a rundown of the stack, but first I would love to hear about the experience. So, you know, you, the, the normal story with, with all startups is um, you start doing some things, you start building some things, and you're basically you know, sort of doing all your reporting in spreadsheets uh, because you're so early. Talk about the experience of sort of realizing that what you were doing wasn't sustainable and that you needed to actually like build some tooling to automate some of the tracking so that you could, like what were the needs there? Were you trying to understand users or the marketing funnel or what were the real drivers that made you step back and say like, we're gonna need to actually build out some infrastructure? Right. Yeah. So um, one of the, the things that we had in the back of our mind from working with the bank was they had talked about this problem of having a 360 degree view of the customer, um, which is really hard when you run a, a regional bank because, you know, you have not only all of the digital channels to keep up with people on, but you have people coming into your bank branch um, and, and, and dealing with you that way. Um, so one of the things that they've always struggled with was, you know, when somebody walks in, they want to be able to know, you know, have they been a customer for 10 years or, or is this their, their first day? Um, you know, how many accounts do they have? That kind of thing. But that's really hard to do with a legacy banking uh, uh, tech, um, which is just sort of the nature of banking systems. So we wanted from the start to be uh, sort of an example um, where, where we could build uh, 
build from the ground up and, and have, you know, this 360 degree view always in mind. And the, the thought was that if we took the time to set that up on the front end, it would not be as hard to retrofit something to a stack that wasn't designed to work that way. So I think the, the like inciting moment where we really started to kick it into high gear was we were, we had, you know, a little bit of marketing, uh, material out there. We were promoting some posts and, and running a few campaigns and um, our conversions were not matching what we were seeing in our, our email uh, database. Um, so we were like, what's the deal? You know, why are we getting, you know, double and triple count counts of conversions in Facebook or Google uh, when we have, you know, half as many of those in our email database. Um, and I think that's when we, we actually reached out to, to yield uh, and started talking with you, Eric, uh, about how we can start making sure that uh, we have quality data through every part of the stack. Yeah, that's actually a good disclosure to make. So uh, prior to joining Rudderstack, I, uh, I had a hand in helping Nick build some of this stuff out um, at a consultancy called Yield, uh, which is actually where we found Rudderstack as well. Unfortunately, we did not find Rudderstack before, um, before we started working with Ruby. Um, but we built, uh, we built some great stuff as well. So, um, give us a quick rundown of, of your tool set. So we kind of think of it in terms of, you know, collection, validation, transformation, uh, routing warehouse, and then, you know, all the sort of cloud tools that you're using. So how about collection? Where do you, where are you ingesting data? What SDKs are you using? Yeah. Um, so Primarily for our web apps, it's um, Analytics JS managed through Segment, um, and then uh, that's for all of the front end code, uh, and that sits on top of our, our marketing websites. Um, we use Google Tag Manager actually; um, it has a, a really robust triggering system. So I, I take advantage of that uh, to trigger different events, uh, and then I, I just write the code that, that fires it off. Um, so that segment can read it. Uh, and then our developers work on our backend uh, events. They use uh, the .NET um, SDK. Uh, and then we'll, we will be implementing with Xamarin. That's our, our mobile tool of choice. Um, so we're, we're working on that integration right now. Got it. And, and just question on Google Tag Manager. So, um, you know, Google Tag Manager is one of those tools that is sort of like, in the market is loved and hated. Yes. Um, yes. You know, for many reasons, uh, and there are lots of blog posts out there, but I just love your perspective on, I mean, I, I would say like coming, you know, being in the same position as you, I don't come from the background of being a developer. So Google Tag Manager allows me to do a lot of things that I just wouldn't be able to do without engineering resources. But what um, I'd love to know, like, what are the biggest benefits of it for you? And what are the things that have been most challenging about it for you? What are yeah. your love and hate for Google Tag Manager? Well, I think what it enables you to do is um, insert code when you don't necessarily have access to the, the underlying HTML. So what I mean by that is, you know, we use WordPress and Unbounce for our marketing website and uh, landing pages. Um, and you know, I don't want to dive into the to the the HTML of our WordPress site every time I want to just fire a new event. Um, and it also saves us from having to deal with like custom 
JavaScript, JavaScript triggers. So essentially, you know, we implement this one tag in the, in the header of our, of our site, and then I can take advantage of Google Tag Manager's really robust triggering system. Uh, I mean, it's, it's got a few simple uh, triggers that it uses, but by filtering things, you can get really, really um, dynamic with, with how you're, you're firing events. Um, one of the other like power features uh, is variables. Um, I didn't know about this for a long time. It was actually hard coding a lot of values, but um, you can use custom JavaScript to grab things off the page dynamically and insert those, uh, those variables into your, your script so you don't have to rewrite things every time. So, you know, the, the classic use case for me is, is just pulling the, the UTM parameters from the, the URL string, which is, contains all of our attribution information, um, and then putting that into whatever event we want to fire. So if it's a sign-up event, you know, that's, that's super important. Um, and what's nice about Google Tag Manager is that when, when you're using the data layer effectively, it's really reliable and it doesn't break as much. Um, and the debugger is really good for, for testing uh, new code out. Um, so that, that helps us, uh, that helps me as a non-developer write code that's gonna save developers time because they're not having to work on it, uh, but also you know, dynamically create new funnels and tracking systems for those um, pretty much as, as fast as you can write the code. Uh, Nick, I have a I have a question. I mean, you're you're describing a pretty robust and uh, quite standard, let's say, uh, setup for how you can track and uh, maintain like a um, infrastructure for tracking and uh, uh, analyzing user events. Um, can you share some more information with us about quality uh, of the data? How do you think this is affected? Uh, by the processes and the tools that you have, how they help you as um, actually the person who is going to consume the data. So the quality of this data is even more important for you. I know that's a big thing also for engineers, but engineers have to do it mainly because um, people like you, they want to make sure that whatever results you get from the data are accurate and on time. So what's your experience so far with that? Like what are like some common issues that you see, some common problems with quality and how you deal with them? Yeah, great question. Um, so as someone who's implementing the code that runs a lot of the front end events and someone who's using them, like I've definitely been there where it's like, I don't know whether I'm seeing this number right now because I wrote the query wrong or because I wrote the original code wrong. Um, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's a little bit of both. Um, but uh, um, I mean, this is actually something that, again, Eric really helped me with, which was just like making sure that naming convention was, was really consistent. And once you picked a certain event to represent something, just sticking with it, um, you know, for a while, I would just like make up event names like for each unique thing that I was doing, um, which made it you know hard to uh, uh, to find those because the way that our database works is each event gets its own table, so that just means that you're you're joining more tables together, um, which there's more cause for for error there. Um, so just uh, I think a lot of it is is sitting down with your team and outlining these are the events we're going to track this is what they mean here are the properties underneath those this is what they're going to be called and they're not going to you know it's not, it's going to be first underscore name not first name um, and making sure that that kind of naming convention is is strict uh, across every um, every piece of technology that you integrate with so 
Um, what I'm talking about, like, yes, it applies to our warehouse, but you know, the events going to our mix panel instance um, are structured the same way. So that way, you know, our, our product team uses mix panel to, to analyze events there. Um, they don't, I, I can give them the same implementation sheet and, and they can know exactly what to query on uh, without, you know, having to say, okay, well, it's, it's this here, but it's, you know, it's something else in another location. Um, so I think it's, it's really about self-discipline, um, at least on a small team, you know, and, and like I said, you want to map out that, that plan beforehand so that you know what you're doing going, going forward. And, th and then anytime you make, uh, you know, a change, um, noting that on, on your implementation guide or your implementation plan sheet. Um, cause obviously things are going to change once you get in there and you realize, you know, you can't fire something the way you wanted to or whatever. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, if I understand correctly, you use some kind of like Google sheet where you, uh, track yes. like the schema of the events and you communicate, yes. use this as a tool to communicate with the rest of the stakeholders inside the company, right? Yeah, we, we did use Google Sheet for a long time. I actually use a Notion database. Um, we're big fans of Notion at our company and it, it, it's, it's something everybody uses. So uh, they all have access to it. Um, but what's nice about that is you can relate different tables to each other. Um, so I have a properties table and, um, and an events table and I just can relate the, the properties to the events, which uh, keeps things consistent uh, from a property standpoint, you know, um, since there's only one, one unique property in each, in the table. Um, no, am I getting too in the weeds here? Um, oh, it's, yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's, okay. it's quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, that's just like another like tip to, um, cause the sheet, you know, we would, ha we had a, a property value under each event. And so again, things, there was more opportunity for error in like misnaming things or misdescribing things. Um, so having this, this notion database has helped with that. Um, the other thing that I use pretty frequently, especially for non-technical users is I have, I just built like a, uh, a, a diagram that's, uh, you know, it's like a schema where it says, you know, data starts here and then goes and goes here and then it gets, you know, ETL here and then it shows up in our warehouse. Um, and it's, it's just super colorful. So like my CEO will use that all of, all the time to talk to investors and say like, this is what we've built. So that way, you know, they're not just looking at a, a data schema and it's like information overload. Um, so that, that was helpful for me to just get my head around, you know, like how data moves through our stack, but also, you know, it, it's proven to be very helpful for, for anybody who is not familiar with it um, to just get a high level view of, of what's going on. Yeah, that's great. Actually, it feels like I'm talking with a data architect, to be honest, and not someone who's coming from marketing, which is very, very interesting. Is there any kind of uh, common issues with the quality of data that you have encountered so far? The, the biggest thing I, I've had issues with is our UTM parameters. Um, we use uh, a sheet that dynamically creates new UTM values and, and a unique ID for each link. Um, Sometimes that can get messed up in the process. And I, I think it, it's a link, it's a break in the chain because um, at some point we just have to copy and paste those links into, um, into the ad platforms. Um, so sometimes people copy and paste the wrong link. And so, you know, we'll have a campaign that's misattributed. Um, but um, 
we've tried to be really strict about that. We have a, an outside consultant that works with us to um, launch all of our campaigns. So we've had to sort of develop a system where I can, I can give him the links uh, in a super organized way. And he, he's actually started using scripts to, to dynamically update our ads. So that's, that's helped a lot. We've gotten down to about like, I think it's like 1% of page views have some sort of attribution error um, of all of our paid page views. Um, but that has, that was a big issue in the past. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just about being, being diligent and really making sure you're, you're, you're checking every, every box and crossing your I's and dotting your T's twice. <laughs> Nick, I'd be interested. In, it's in part just because I have some inside knowledge about how this works, but I think it would be interesting on the attribution question, like explain why that has been so important to you as a company. And then how have you like just walk us through the flow of you tag a link with UTM parameters that goes into Facebook. That's very, you know, everyone sees that, but then just like follow those UTM parameters through the stack. And then how do you use them, you know, in like any analytics tools, it'd be cool to just get a walkthrough of that. Yeah, sure. So um, like you said, we, we create the, the link and then um, it has a, a unique ID in there. So one issue we had was we were trying to stuff all of the, every bit of information that we wanted to know about a particular campaign or a particular ad into the link, uh, which created a problem because we had these huge long strings with all of these codes um, that nobody really understood what they meant. I mean, we had keys to read them, but you often had to go back and look at the key and say, okay, ASG 32, like that's this campaign, you know, this audience uh, group. Um, so uh, instead we, we have some minim minimal information in there like source and, and medium. Um, but this unique ID um, is stored in a, in a Google spreadsheet, actually. So that, this is what allows us to uh, dynamically create new, new links. Um, but on the back end, um, we can later join um, events based on that unique ID uh, and pull in all of the metadata from our, our Google Sheet uh, using the, the BigQuery Google Sheet uh, integration. Um, so, but anyway, to go back to step-by-step, um, so we tag the link, somebody clicks on it. Um, usually that fires off a page view event. Well, it always fires off a page view event on our landing page. Um, and that page view event has the, uh, the attribution information in there. And then usually we're trying to get them to click a button or fill out a form. So whichever it is, um, the conversion event will also have the attribution information in it. So we can see, you know, how many people land on the page, how many people converted. And then um, depending on whether or not it's just a marketing campaign for a new product, uh, the, it might end there. You know, they'll get an email, um, which our events can also fire off emails from uh, the, the tool we use is autopilot um, for, for uh, email marketing campaigns. Um, but, uh, if it's a sign up campaign, then they'll go to our app and they'll be prompted to put in all of their information there. Um, and then, uh, we'll see, we'll see the attribution information forwarded from the, the landing page, uh, on the sign up event as well. So, um, everything pre-conversion should have attribution information in it and it gets routed through segment, um, out to, uh, data, uh, to our data warehouse, which is BigQuery. Uh, and like I said, it gets slotted into various tables there and I can uh, pick up the events and, and query the databases and, and join them together to, to sort of build a funnel analysis. Um, but we also have funnel analysis in, in Mixpanel as well, but that's mainly for product stuff. 
Very cool. And can you explain just a little bit more about the Google sheet is connected to BigQuery. So you're actually joining like the tagged links spreadsheet yes. with other, like with actual event data that includes yeah. the parameters from those events, like the page views and other things. Right. Since we store the unique ID as its own UTM parameter, it comes through as uh, a field in our warehouse on the event level. And then because that maps to a unique value in this sheet, we can join together on that, on that value uh, and bring in all of the, the metadata from the other sheet. So that's everything from the audience to the, the ad uh, image size, the, uh, like all of that kind of stuff, any like sort of creative um, or strategic uh, marketing information that you would want to know. Um, and that's been super helpful. Um, my CEO is famous for asking me like, okay, like here's a trend, but like how, do, how does that change when we only look at this one audience or we only look at this one um, source? Um, so that makes it really easy uh, to, to filter on any of those values because all I have to do is just add a new column to the data set um, and then run a filter on it or, or, a, um, or, or group by uh, that, that field and we're good. That's amazing. Do you, what, are you looking at this in spreadsheets or like, what are you, where, where are you actually providing that analysis? Yeah. So typically I'm building out uh, data sets in BigQuery. Um, you know, it, it sort of has the most power. And especially if we're looking at like an all anonymous page views, um, that's really the only way you're going to effectively look at, you know, 70, a hundred thousand plus rows of data. Um, but a lot of times what I do is I leave it somewhat unaggregated and then I, I pull it into data studio which is google's free visualization software um, so that i can i can run other analysis on it um, and give people like charts to work with and filters uh, and like dynamic date controls um, like i said our ceo he's he's very analytical he always wants to dive in and and look at the data himself but obviously he doesn't have the time or the interest in going into sql and building out these data sets so um this has been a good way for us to, for me to give him the flexibility he needs um, to ask his own questions of the data, uh, as well as anybody else in the company who, you know, can click a drop down. Um, so uh, that's been great. We also uh, sent it straight to go back to Google Sheets. Um, uh, BigQuery has like an integration where it can run a query, like basically any time uh, you click a button and it'll refresh a sheet. So if, uh, someone is more comfortable working in a spreadsheet format, um, they can use that as well. There are some issues with that though, since there's only, I think there's a 10,000 row limit. Uh, so to get some of those queries to work, I have to aggregate them in a way that, you know, it'll be under, under 10,000 rows. I have to say, not bad for going from being a research analyst to, uh, <laughs> to building out like pretty stinking advanced uh, infrastructure that, can push data to all these different places. So that's, yeah, that's well, pretty it took a, it took a little bit of time and I had a lot of help. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been really fun to learn. I, I, I always tell people it's like, it's a very interesting puzzle to solve. Interested. I'm interested in the, um, I, I have a lot of questions, but one challenge that I know a lot of companies face, especially in the early stage, which is usually a technical issue related to like, doing a lot of acquisition work and then needing to have having people uh, sign up for some early version of the product 
there's usually some sort of challenge in connecting the dots between, you know, I have a landing page where people are like signing up and putting in their email and then they go into some sort of login thing. Sometimes that's third party and then they're experiencing some early version of the product. Did you face any challenges around putting those pieces together at Ruby, especially in the early phases when you were sort of in MVP mode with the product? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, we we ran into the same traps as everyone. I mean, we would uh, have a Zapier connection that took form data from one landing page to a different page. Or, uh, I mean, at one point we actually we did not have a, a self service sign up, so we had to capture form information, use a Zapier connection, send it to Salesforce, so that our customer support team could uh, could create an account manually for them. Um, but thankfully that was, that was short lived. Um, that's true startup style. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, one of the things that has been helpful is, is, you know, segment is used for all of these, um, analytic events, but I also use them to trigger other actions. I, I mentioned earlier, um, you know, our signup event is something that we measure, uh, but it's also used to put them into the signup, uh, customer segment in autopilot, which triggers, um, uh, a series of onboarding emails. Um, so that kind of stuff has helped a lot. We still, we still use some of those stuff, some of that stuff from time to time. Like if it's, if there's a time crunch, but for the most part, I try to figure out a way to, um, write a, a bit of analytics JS code, uh, that can handle what we want to do because it, it is the most, uh, reliable way to do it. And it's also the most portable since uh, we're routing all of our information through segment right now. Um, we can, we can then take that event and send it anywhere we want. And we, we've tried to build our, our stack in a way that we're not leveraging too many tools that don't integrate um, with either segment or some other tool that we're using. Um, it happens from time to time, but uh, that's like, that's one of the ways that I evaluate tools is, is this going to integrate with, with things that we already have? And if not, like, are we willing to deal with the pain of, you know, having to deal with like manual uploads and downloads and that kind of thing of CSVs? Your, I mean, your product works in a very interesting industry. I mean, you're talking about financial data also, um, the healthcare industry. So these are like traditionally two industries that are very, very, serious around privacy uh, and how you manage the data and all that stuff. So um, this is a big discussion. I mean, we all know about GDPR and all these initiatives in general. So, um, but what's your experience with that so far and like how this affects the way that you design um, your data stack and um, yeah, what's your experience? Yeah, uh, this will probably be a better question for Sam to answer. He's specifically spent a lot of time on this. Um, I will, I will just say like, that is something that is, you know, paramount to us and, and something that we don't take lightly. Um, so I, all of our marketing data is, it's typically attribution information and, and did they sign up for, for this or did they not? Uh, and we're always um, analyzing things based on either their anonymous ID or their user ID. So, um, you know, I make sure not to expose any sort of email information um, unless obviously it's going to the email database. Um, but, Typically, um, we try to, to keep that as anonymous as possible. Yeah, I think a big part of this is also like the stack that you have. And I think that the approach that you have of like uh, keeping it simple 
uh, and like having the minimum possible number of like tools and actually choosing the right tools for that uh, job is also what is quite important. So based on all the tools that you have mentioned so far, they're all like uh, privacy conscious tools like segment, for example, or like when you're working on BigQuery. So yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure you'll have a lot of to discuss with, uh, with uh, your CTO about that. Uh, but yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, Nick, what, um, I'm interested to know, just from the, since you're a consumer of the data as well, has there been a, like, a report or a set of reports that you really feel like moved the needle for the company in a big way? You know, where, because I think, uh, you know, just having done a lot of this work over the years, it cost us and I both know, one of the challenges is you work, you sort of work on the data, massage the data, work on the data, right? And then you start working on reporting and it's the same thing, right? Like you have to keep working on the reporting to sort of get it to a point where it's manageable, it's understandable, you know the questions you want to answer. So just being an early stage startup and being someone who's both like built the data flows and then is consuming them, is there a report that you and other people in the company sort of produced that was like, okay, this is like really helpful or, you know, game changing or, Yes, there is. Um, so we, I, I think I do sit in an interesting spot in that I'm, I'm consuming and, and writing the code uh, to, to track events. Um, and that has taught me a lot about like how to structure uh, my events on the front end uh, and then how to structure my data sets in a way that allows people to ask multiple questions from it. So, you know, it's very easy to write some SQL that gives you one number um, that's just a roll up of, you know, whatever it is, but that's not really that useful to, to anybody if they can't, you know, also ask questions from it. Um, so that's changed how I, I build my data sets, um, in general, but, uh, the one like, uh, really powerful set that we've been using, uh, is actually around the idea of trying to understand each anonymous user's individual customer acquisition costs. Um, so typically when you think of customer ac acquisition costs, you're, you're taking the sum of, uh, of the amount of money you spent on a campaign and dividing it by the number of conversions that you got, right? Um, so it's sort of an, it's an aggregate function. But um, our, my CEO said, well, you know, if we think about it, like we can, we can assign cost to each person because we know we have all of the data on spend and we have all the data on conversions. So the way that we've done that is we sum all of the spend and uh, conversions in a given day uh, by every unique ad ID that comes through uh, our, our system. So we then essentially assign that back to uh, a unique uh, table with, with user anonymous IDs on it. Um, so we can say, this is uh, the, the customer acquisition cost for that person because they came in uh, from this one ad on this day. Um, and then if they uh, clicked on any other ads, it'll also add that additional cost to the table or, or to that, that their row in the table. Um, and because we use that dynamic uh, uh, ID that I talked about earlier with the, uh, in the Google sheet, we can also pull in, okay, what was their, uh, their first uh, touch and their last touch. Um, what what are all of the the attribution data ab about that? Um, so I can see 
um, everybody whose first touch, uh, like what, what campaign it was, what audience they were in, and then their last touch, um, what the same thing. Uh, a lot of times it, that those are the same, but you know, sometimes people interact with multiple campaigns um, and, and those are different. And we can see the, the timestamp difference between those values. So we can see how long uh, it took for, for them to convert, um, how many page views it took for them to convert. Um, and that data set has been particularly useful uh, and particularly flexible, like I said, because of the way I, I built it. So one, one example of that is I had been using this to identify what audiences were, were the most efficient to, for us to acquire new uh, leads and new users in. Uh, but there came a time where we wanted to start testing landing pages against each other. So I was able to very quickly layer in uh, the landing page name and variation um, so that we could test different variations against each other. Um, so yeah. Man, that's awesome. That's crazy. So are you, so I guess that produces actually a more accurate view of the total cost per acquisition. Cause if someone interacts with multiple campaigns, you're actually calculating the cost of that, even though they didn't convert on like earlier campaigns that they may have interacted with. Yeah, exactly. And we, we could layer in each, um, each successive event um, and all of the metadata associated with that. Uh, but you know, it gets to be a pretty unwieldy table at that point. Most people are only coming in with one or two events. So first touch and last touch um, is sufficient. Um, anything in, in between is just sort of extra detail. Sure. Sure. All right. Well, um, last couple of questions for you. What, what current projects are you working on re related to the data stack? And then what kind of plans do you have for the future as you look at, you know, your growth and the direction that you're taking as a company? Yeah. So the, the current, uh, push is for uh, our, our mobile tool that we're building, our mobile app. Um, this is the first app that our company has built. So the entire company is learning about um, how to do that, how to market that most efficient, uh, efficiently. Um, and, you know, I'm currently working on uh, layering in that information to the stack that we already have built and all of the data sets that we've already built. Um, we're also building out a new website in Webflow um, like I said, we were previously were using WordPress, uh, and unbounce, but that's going to have to, I'll have to basically switch out, um, all of our, all of our information, uh, from, from those services to, to this one, um, future plans. Um, I think one of the things I I've wanted to do for a while is, um, build a unique, uh, user lookup, not because I want to look at individual uh, people, but, um, because I want to essentially use that as a guide to, um, bring together, um, all of our, our data into one unique view, um, where we can type in an anonymous, anonymous ID and see all of the campaigns, uh, that, that someone's, uh, come through and their individual customer acquisition costs. Um, I think that would be a great way to, to bring, um, all of our data sets together. Um, and again, use that for further analysis. The thing I found is like, when you start building some of these data sets, if you do it in a way that's flexible, um, it allows much quicker analysis. Like you don't have to, you don't have to go back to the drawing board um, to, uh, to analyze a new funnel um, if, if you've connected everything in a way and documented all of those connections um, in a way that, that is uh, flexible.
Awesome. Costas, any, uh, any other questions for Nick before we, before we jump off? Uh, not really. I think it was very interesting to go through like uh, how things uh, have been like consumed from the marketing side of things. I think there are like uh, some stuff that we can discuss uh, also from uh, the data engineering, let's say, aspect and get a little bit more of like technical details on how things are like um, implemented there. Uh, but I think it was a great, great story and a great journey of how like uh, whatever data engineers do and whatever data have been collected, like can actually be used and what are like some really great actual um, best practices around doing that. Nick, thank you for joining us on the show today. Uh, and thank you for telling your story again, pretty incredible what you've accomplished there and we wish you and Ruby, great success. Yeah, thank you again for having me. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. That was a great discussion. It was our first discussion with someone who is actually a consumer of the data inside the company. Um, I think, Eric, it was also quite amazing because we actually, with Nick, we had the person who uh, is like two different roles in one. I mean, you could hear like a marketeer, but at the same time speaking like a data engineer or a data architect. That was like quite amazing. And I think this is, has a lot to do with um, being part of a startup where you have to be scrappy and you have to play uh, many different roles there. Uh, but I think one of the, out the, uh, one of the things that um, I found like extremely interesting is how important it is for all the stakeholders inside the company to be aligned with how to work with the data and how this mm -hmm. affects a lot the quality. And of course, it's like something that's probably easier to be done in a smaller company where you have uh, you know, smaller teams, people having multiple roles. But I think that the same, uh, the same principles apply also to bigger companies. Um, and I'm pretty sure that like as we continue and we talk with more people and also when we are going to be talking with um, uh, the CTO of the company, of Ruby, we will see that uh, how important this is in terms of like delivering the right data and also like high quality data to drive your uh, your decisions. What do you think? Yeah, I think it was really interesting. I mean, I've had a chance to work with Nick on some of that stuff and I can, yeah, I can say that, I, you know, he's a pretty amazing individual and in that he can play both roles really well. I mean, he, he writes uh, SQL, he writes JavaScript, um, you know, and that's pretty rare for someone who's consuming the data in a fairly early stage startup. I will say though, I think that people with that skill set are going to become more and more common just because they're in such high demand. Uh, like you said, at a company with an actual data engineering function, you have people dedicated to the role. But in, an, in the early stage of a company, the product team is just focused on getting customer feedback and building features that are actually going to drive adoption. And it's, I mean, as important as data is, the reality is it's really hard when you're trying to achieve product market fit to slow down and build like a comprehensive data pipeline. Uh, so I think people like Nick who can sort of understand the data needs of the organization and then do a lot of things on the front end um, to collect and, and route the data um, is going to be more common. I also think it's interesting, you know, the need for alignment that you said around sort of data governance or data quality tools like um, Avo and iteratively 
are popping up to help solve that problem because I think most companies are doing that in a Google Sheet or some sort of other shared uh, shared resource. So just a lot of interesting things to consider for anyone working on data in an organization and it makes me really interested to hear the perspective of the CTO in part two next time. Absolutely. I'm also looking forward uh, to hear the perspective of the CTO. So let's see what happens on the next episode. Great. Thanks again for joining us.